This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. I was phenomenally moved by this week's conversation with Rabbi Dr. Jacob J. Schachter. Full disclosure, Rabbi Schachter is somebody who I've been reading for years, decades even. I've loved his essays and articles in the Torah Umada Journal, which he edited for many years. And just generally speaking, I've read many of his works. I have heard him speak as a scholar in residence and in other forums many times. Just find him so interesting, multifaceted, broad, intellectual, but with a pathos that is unusual for a scholar of his renown. Now, the more immediate precipitator for Rabbi Schechter to join us today has been his most recent venture called Operation Benjamin, where he is helping identify Jewish soldiers who were killed in service of the United States Army and subsequently buried under a Latin cross instead of a Jewish Star of David, as should have been the case, doing lots of research to identify their Jewish origins and helping restore their gravesite to one that identifies them as a Jewish individual. And that is a remarkable and wonderful project. But we spend much, if not most, of this conversation today speaking about his entire life background, including his emergence from an illustrious family, his father, a very prominent rabbi, liberated Buchenwald, and accomplished a great deal in his own life. And then Rabbi Schachter himself, the longtime star in the rabbinic world, an editor, an author, a professor, and much more still. So for me, it was really a treat to be able to have this hour together with Rabbi Dr. Schachter. Meanwhile, a reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Please subscribe or follow wherever you're listening right now. That may be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, whatever platform that may be. Please spread the word to your friends and family so that they too can enjoy this podcast. Comments or questions to Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with historian, academic, rabbi's rabbi, and founder of Operation Benjamin, Rabbi Dr. Jacob J. Schachter. We are here with Rabbi Dr. Jacob J. Schachter, who has had an illustrious career spanning so many different genres, so to speak, as a, a writer, a rabbi, and most recently running Operation Benjamin, which is a fascinating attempt to offer the proper respect and dignity to Jewish soldiers who have been lost in battle, American soldiers. And we're going to hear about all of that. But first of all, Rabbi, how are you? Baruch Hashem. Thank God, Ari. It's a privilege and an honor to be able to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. And as, as I mentioned before, uh, we went live over here that, you know, the privilege is really mine. I've been reading your articles for decades, literally. Um, I remember being a uh, maybe 19 or 20 years old and reading a seminal article you wrote about truth in history, historicity in, in Judaism, and debating that vigorously with other people in my dorm and, and with uh, mentors. 
and uh, I've heard you speak at many occasions and, and just a lot of different touch points uh, in my own life. So I'm, I'm so grateful to have the opportunity. Um, I know, Rabbi Jackson, that you come from a very, very uh, illustrious family origin and that uh, your own father, your own family uh, was involved in great things for the Jewish people. So why don't we start there? Tell me a little bit about kind of where you're from, where your family is from and, and your early beginnings. Um, I grew up in the Bronx in New York. Um, my father was a very, very prominent uh, American Orthodox rabbi, probably most prominent for being the first American army chaplain to enter into the concentration camps. Uh, he liberated the Buchenwald concentration camp on April 11th, 1945. And that catapulted him into a, a long, long, long life of very distinguished leadership within the American Jewish community, uh, and also tremendous impact on Israel and uh, other places as well. Um, he was a pulpit rabbi in the Bronx. He was a rabbi of a shul, the Marshallu Jewish Center in the northwestern part of the Bronx. Uh, that's where uh, I uh, was born, and that's where I grew up. I went to a local yeshiva, the Lubavitcher Yeshiva, until uh, eighth grade, although I did complete eighth grade at the age of 10, some strange uh, set of circumstances. I started first grade at the age of four. I skipped second grade. I ended up uh, graduating at the age of 10. I couldn't go to high school, so I went to another uh, elementary school, uh, Yeshiva Zichron Moshe in the Bronx, to uh, redo seventh and eighth grade. So that at the ripe old age of 12, uh, I'm able to go to high school. And uh, the high school my parents chose for me was the Talmudical Yeshiva of Philadelphia. Essentially, I was not really doing well in school at all. Uh, my parents took me to a psychologist to assess my mental acumen. Uh, the determination was that I should have been doing better than I was doing in school. And the uh, psychologist with whom my parents consulted suggested maybe if I left home, that would give me an opportunity to come into myself. And so at the age of 12, before my bar mitzvah, I got on the train with a black suit and a black hat and went to the yeshiva of Philadelphia. I was there for five years and uh, moved on from there. It's fascinating you know, that your parents didn't take that as a uh, as an insult that they should, you know, if a psychologist says to you, you know, your kid needs to get away from you. <laughs> no, no, it's, I think, a reflection of the fact that I, I was important for me to fly with the wings that they had already given me. Yeah. Uh, I think that they had poured a lot into me and it was time for me earlier than most, I guess to uh, exercise those, uh, those wonderful wings and uh, see what I could do. I came home regularly. We used to come home every six weeks for Shabbos and, and uh, holidays and uh, summers. Uh, sure, we had a very warm and close, uh, ongoing, intense personal relationship with my parents for my entire life. First of all, where does your family itself uh, immigrate from? Was your father a first generation? Had he come over from Europe? Uh, both of my parents were born in Brooklyn. All four of my grandparents were, were Galiziana. They came from Galicia. Uh, they came over at different times. Uh, my father's father came over in 1907. Our name is Schechter. And the reason why our name is Schechter is because uh, my uh, 
ancestors were all shochtim. They were all ritual slaughterers. Is that true of anyone with that name? Is that a general rule? Not necessarily. Uh, I think there's a town somewhere that is somehow connected to that. Not all shechters have that. Many, many do. Obviously, you understand it doesn't mean that we're related to one another because it's not a, really a family name. It's a trade name. Uh, there were seven generations of shochtim, uh, and my uh, father broke the chain. My grandfather, his father, was the last of seven. Ben Ben, one son following another for seven generations. When my grandfather, Reb Pinchas Shechet, he was known as Reb Pinchas Shechet, came to the United States, he found a job in Manchester, New Hampshire in 1907. And uh, my father told me that his father told him that he got a nickel for every animal that he slaughtered and a penny for every chicken that he slaughtered. Uh, He had already a number of children born uh, in Europe. A couple of years later, his wife came over with them. They had a number of other children and moved to Brownsville in Brooklyn. And that's where my father was born. My father was the youngest of their 10 children, all from uh, Galicia. And my mother's parents were also Galiciana. Uh, They also came over at various different stages. So uh, both my parents were born in uh, in Brooklyn. How did your father end up with this unique military role and, and, and of course, as you mentioned, he was this uh, famous liberator and in all the pictures you see him and people read accounts of his, you know, amazing feats of, of being there, I guess, in that right place at the right time. And, and then subsequently doing so much for survivors, having been so shaken and moved by what he saw. How did he end up in that position? As you said, he was a, a pulpit rabbi in the Bronx. Well, this was before he was a pulpit rabbi in the Bronx. My father went to Chaim Berlin uh, in elementary school. Then he went to Tervidas for high school. And then he went to Yeshiva College. And he uh, graduated the class of 1938 uh, from college, Yeshiva College. That was under Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik at the time? Yeah. And he went into Smicha. He went to study for rabbinic ordination. And he studied with Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik and uh, was all ready to uh, take his exams when uh, the two leading lights of the yeshiva died within a few months of one another. Um, Dr. Bernard Revel, who was the president of the yeshiva, died in, I think it was November or December of 1940, and Rav Moshe Soloveitchik died in January of 1941. And essentially, the yeshiva was left rudderless uh, without any leadership. There were a number of his classmates, his uh, fellow uh, travelers, who essentially gave up on uh, the yeshiva because there was really not that much going on then. There was nothing on the horizon really at that point. And they also gave up on orthodoxy. You know, today we're very proud of the fact that, thank God, orthodoxy is doing well and we're strong and we have all kinds of robust communal organizations. But then orthodoxy was hanging on less than half a hair in America. And a number of his classmates uh, took the subway and went downtown to 122nd Street and got rabbinic ordination from the Jewish Theological Seminary and became conservative rabbis. Uh, My father, however, stuck to it. And about a half a year later, the leadership, the lay leadership of the yeshiva decided to invite Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, the son of Rabbi 
Moses Soloveitchik to be the head of the yeshiva. It was a huge fight at that time. When we look back, it seems so silly, but uh, there was a huge opposition to him because he wasn't Zionist enough. Uh, he didn't have the hashkafa, the value system enough of what the boys in the yeshiva wanted. There are raging editorials in the student newspaper opposed to Rabbi Joseph P. Soloveitchik. And at the end of the day, the board of directors gave him a one-year contract just to see how it would go. As we say, the rest is history. Uh, he stayed for over four decades. But meanwhile, there are a couple of guys who are backlogged, uh, waiting to get smicha, to get ordination. And uh, my father was the first one uh, who elbowed his way in, uh, was the first one to get the rabbinic ordination from Rabbi Joseph P. Soloveitchik after he came to uh, the yeshiva. That in our family is a mark of great distinction. My father always felt that that was extraordinary. Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik gave smicha, rabbinic ordination, to more rabbis than anyone else ever in Jewish history. Uh, he gave rabbinic ordination, signed on the rabbinic ordination certificate on the cloth of something like 2,500 rabbis. And my father always prided himself that he was the first one. Was it? Does he recall the exam as grueling? Because back in those days, Rabbi Soloveitchik was known to be uh, a tough cookie back in the early days. <laughs> it, was, it was a very grueling exam. At that point, my father already had provisionally a job in Stamford, Connecticut. Uh, my father was a incredibly gifted orator. Uh, I'll just digress for a second. My father told me, and I never believed it, that when he was eight or nine or 10, uh, not only was he uh, invited to speak at the annual dinner of Masifta Chaim Berlin, and he would get up on a chair and, and speak at the dinner, but he actually told me that he was invited to go to weddings, and they put him up on a chair under the chuppah, and he would speak to the bride and the groom under the chuppah. So that to me was psychotically impossible. <laughs> Could you imagine this little yingala, this little kid is telling the bride and groom about <laughs> life and about relationships and about commitments. I could not believe it until when I was sitting Shiva for my father, he passed away in 2013. Someone came in to be Menachem Avel to give us comfort and told us that my father did that at the age of nine for his parents' wedding. So I had independent confirmation, and I still can't believe it. Astounding. Um, <laughs> astounding. Anyway, he was a very powerful speaker. He would, throughout his teen years, he would speak. In the summer, he'd go to hotels. He would speak. The yeshiva would send him to raise money. So he had this reputation. He gets a job in Stanford, Connecticut, as the rabbi. I go to Sachem in Stanford, Connecticut. Shul is still there. Yep albeit in a different place, but the shul is still there. And the deal was that he could earn the job only after he got rabbinic ordination. So there was a lot riding on this. And my father told me that he always uh, remembers how Rabbi Soloveitchik would needle him in this oral exam and say, no, 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 Stanford the Rav, Stanford the Rav, the rabbi of Stanford, what do you say about this? You're a rabbi. What do you say about this? What do you say about this? And it was pretty tough. There were two other 
elderly uh, Rashi Yeshiva who were also on the panel. I think Rabbi Soloveitchik, this being his first one, needed to uh, show that he's no pushover. And thank God, my father said they had great mercy on him. Rachmanis on him, they asked him to leave. And he uh, was sweating bullets. And then they called him in and said, Mazel Tov, uh, you, uh, you passed. So it was a very grueling exam. And that's what allowed him to stay in Stanford. This is now 1941, and uh, he's there for a number of months, and he's very unhappy because the war is unfolding, and he feels that he has to he has to volunteer to fight Hitler. About a year and a year ago, year and a half ago, I published in a journal called Tradition a four-page letter in Hebrew, in magnificent Hebrew, that my father wrote to his parents explaining why he wants to volunteer, totally against their wishes. My grandparents were unalterably opposed to him doing this. They said to him, you're a rabbi, you're already doing great things for the Jewish people, why do you have to go put yourself in harm's way? Remember, he was the youngest of their 10 children. My grandparents lost five of their 10 children in their lifetime, to various illnesses, this one from tetanus and this one in the flu epidemic. We don't have a clue about what that was like. And my father was the apple of their eye. He was the one who was learned. He was the one who spoke Yiddish beautifully. He was the one who was a Yodea Sefer, who had knowledge of of Jewish texts. He was the one who was going to be a rabbi. And they just were panic-stricken that they would lose him. And they told him, in no uncertain terms, that it is absolutely prohibited for him to go. In this four-page letter, he explains why he is nevertheless contravening their explicitly stated wishes, and he is going to go ahead and volunteer for the army. I invite you and your listeners to go find it. It's a gripping letter. He says to his grandfather, we have to show gratitude to America. America took you in when you came here and gave you a better life, and we need to fight for America. Number two, Jews are an incredible danger now. There's this whole debate, Ari, I'm sure you know how much did American Jewry right, really sure. know what was going on. Uh, they knew, they knew enough. My father knew that European Jewry was on fire. How can I sit here? that the voice of my brother is crying out for me. And he says to his father in this letter, he writes him, you have three brothers in Poland. If any one of them had a son who could save Jews, would they not want him to save Jews? You don't want me to help save them? They all were killed. They were all killed. My grandfather's siblings, nephews, nieces, grandchildren, they were totally wiped out. But in this letter, my father said, I'm sorry. I hear the call of God in the garden, and I will answer Hineni. Unlike Adam, Adam, I'm not going to hide. I am going to forthrightly respond, yes, I'm coming. And he volunteered in the army. He was in the army for a couple of years, and he was in different parts of the United States and the Caribbean. He was very upset. He kept on petitioning the office of chaplains to send them overseas. 
Finally, in January of 1945, he gets posted overseas. He fights in the Battle of the Bulge. The Allies are now moving into Germany. And on that fateful day, he was right outside of Buchenwald, April 11th, 1945, when he was in the right place at the right time to make a massive, incredible, earth-shattering impact, to have an impact, to make a difference for these survivors. This is the story, the narrative of my childhood. The narrative of my childhood is meeting survivors whose lives literally my father saved. He didn't just take them out from servitude to freedom. He took them from death to life. Did he encounter the young, at that time young, but then a future Rabbi Lau, who was the youngest Buchenwald survivor? We have an incredible story. Uh, yes, that was the time when he came in. Uh, there was a pile of corpses and he saw movement and he grabbed his gun and looked around and he sees this little kid with eyes peeking out. They have a very powerful conversation. My father asked him his name. My father said, I know who your father is. Uh, Rabbi Lau is also related to Rameer Shapiro, who's the founder of Dafyomi. My father said, I heard of him too. So he won his confidence. And he, uh, this uh, little Lulik, that's the way he was known, took my father by the hand and walked him around. He went into the barracks. That's the time when he made that extremely famous statement. He got onto the uh, microphone of the whole Buchenwald camp and he said, Yidin isn't frei. Uh, he spoke to them in Yiddish. He walked around, and at first, many of the survivors were frightened because here's another uniform walking around. A uniform meant persecution. A uniform meant torture. A uniform meant death. And now here's a uniform walking around, and they looked on his lapel, and they saw the Aseris Adibros, the Ten Commandments, in a little silver or a gold ornament that was attached to the lapel of every Jewish chaplain. And out of this uniform comes Yiddish, and he's talking to them in Yiddish. And slowly, he wins them over. Little Lulik took my father to his older brother, to Naftali, who guarded him for all those years. He was sick. My father took an orange out of his bag and gave it to him. And uh, Naftali writes how my father was the first one who gave him back not only life, but gave him back hope for humanity and faith in God. Um, my father was very close with Rabbi Lau all these years. Rabbi Lau never, ever missed an opportunity to tell the story of their encounter. In a minute, I'll tell you one example. And I myself, uh, thanks to my father's relationship to Rabbi Lau, developed a very warm relationship. I invite you and your listeners to go online and to Google, put in my name, uh, Rabbi Schachter, Rabbi Lau APAC, in the last uh, APAC conference uh, that was in the beginning of March 2020, you know, seven minutes before the world shut down. Super spreader event. <laughs> Super spreader. He and I opened the APAC conference in front of 18,000 people. It was the 75th uh, anniversary of the liberation of the camps. I started by telling my father's story and I got up to the part of my father came into the camp. There was a pile of corpses. He 
turns around, he sees a little boy, and I stopped. And at that point, Rabbi Lau walked onto the stage and said, I was that little boy. It was unbelievable. There were 18,000 people. It was gripping. I took him by the hand. I was holding on to him. Watch the YouTube. It's extraordinary. Uh, so, yes, that was uh, something very powerful. I'll tell you that um, my father passed away. I mentioned in 2013, it was right before Pesach. It was the Thursday before Pesach. The next day, Friday, was the funeral. And on that day, uh, then-President Barack Obama was visiting Israel and went to Yad Vashem. Rabbi Lau was the not the formal professional head of Yad Vashem, but... He was the honorary president. Honorary president of Yad Vashem. And so he and uh, then uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, Shimon Peres, and uh, the heads of Yad Vashem, they're all standing there. And it's Rabbi Lau's turn to speak. He turns to President Obama and he says, this gives me an opportunity to thank you personally. Because 75 years ago, American soldiers came and liberated me and brought me to freedom. And there was a chaplain by the name of Rabbi Herschel Schachter, who was a very prominent American who went on to greatness in America. And he came in and he saved me and he saved all of us. And so on behalf of all the survivors of Buchenwald, I want to thank you. But I want to tell you, Mr. President, you came too late. You came too late because so many of us were killed. Now we need your help. Don't come too late. This was at the moment that my father was being buried. At the moment of his funeral, Rabbi Lau is mentioning his name to President Obama in Yerushalayim. And uh, people came running over to us, you know, just to tell us. But I had no idea. And then on Sunday, Rabbi Lau called to be Menachem Avul to express his condolences. And I asked him, when you told that story, had you known that my father had passed away? He said, I did not know it yet. But when I went back into the car, Kol Yisrael radio on the news made that announcement. So for us and our family, it was extremely, extremely powerful. A month after my father died, Rabbi Lau came with his wife to New York. He came to the, my old synagogue, the shul that I was a rabbi of, the Jewish Center on the Upper West Side, to be scholar in residence. I called him. I made an appointment with him, and I brought my wife, our kids, our in-law kids, and all our grandchildren to meet with him. I wanted him to meet the great-grandchildren of Rabbi Herschel Schachter. We met for an hour. And he looked at one of my grandsons and says, how old are you? He said, I'm eight years old. He said, that's how old I was when I met your great-grandfather. It was gripping, powerful. And uh, he is an incredibly uh, great man. Hashem, God should give him strength. How did this particular shadow sort of of your childhood impact you? I mean, was it was it a childhood filled with memories of obviously not the Holocaust itself, but sort of that secondary trauma of hearing about it, the stories, meeting survivors. How, how did that impact your childhood? My relationship with the Holocaust growing up was not crushingly negative. My father was very upbeat and optimistic. 
The survivors whom we met were not wallowing in the tragedy of the past, but were looking forward to the future to build meaningful lives for themselves and to create families. Uh, there was one survivor in particular, was, we called him Dod Chaskel. His name was Chaskel Tidor, and uh, he became a Ben Bayes. He came to visit us all the time. Remarkable, remarkable person. I remember like it was yesterday. I'm going to say it was 65 years ago. It took me for a walk in the botanical gardens, not far from my parental home. And for the first time, I saw numbers on his arm. He was wearing short sleeves. And I remember asking him, I literally, mamish, remember asking him, Dodhaskel, what are the numbers? I had no idea. I do not remember what he told me, but I remember he told it to me with great kindness, sensitivity, humanity, understanding, and that's what stayed with me. It was hard growing up in my uh, father's house because he was such a larger-than-life figure, and it was my mother, Aleha Shalom, who kept me grounded and who had a tremendous uh, positive impact on me. I wouldn't be anything near anything without, uh, without my mother, Allah Shalom, Penina Shakter. But it was hard because, you know, what can I ever do? You know, every kid wants to grow up, you know, appreciates their parents, but at some point you have to hit the road and go make, make your own life and make your own place. But I was overwhelmed by this huge uh, force on the one hand. On the other hand, I was very inspired to do whatever I could do. I could never do what he did. I can't save mamish, literally, people's lives. I can't bring people from death to life. I can't do that. But maybe there are other ways that I could help Jews and help the Jewish community. And so that was a very important part. I wanted to help the Jewish community. Um, and that's sort of these dual, almost mutually exclusive, but both simultaneously existing uh, legacies of my childhood. You know, the overwhelming role that my father played and, and the despair that I felt that what can I ever do? And on the other hand, I need to do something. I also need a whatever little schmendrick thing I could do. Uh, I really need to do something uh, for the Jewish people. He went to the Philadelphia Yeshiva, which I guess was his, in its early stages, probably. Rabbi Kamenetsky, Rabbi Sfei, and one of these uh, great bastion of Jewish learning outside of the New York area. Uh, what's interesting is that you were there for five years, but ultimately you moved in a slightly different direction, more into the Yeshiva University, kind of, I guess, more centrist Orthodox world, so to speak. Um, you spoke, I recall, on the uh, my friend uh, David Bashevkin's podcast, very movingly and very vulnerably about that transition and some of the later I mean, collateral damage of that transition, the challenges of that. What sort of shaped you at that part of your life? Why did you end up shifting, as subtle as it might be, from one part of the Orthodox community to a slightly different direction? Where were you trying to go at that young age? That's really a good question, and I think about this a lot when I look back at the trajectory of my own life. I ended up in the Yeshiva of Philadelphia, not for any ideological reasons, but because the principal of my then elementary school, Yeshiva Zechromosha, his name was Dr. Schnell, Alfred Schnell, 
was close with uh, and a friend of Rebellious Shvei. And once the psychologist determined that I should leave home, our principal, my principal, thought that that would be a good idea. It's, it's a little over two hours from New York. It's not Los Angeles. It's not Dallas, Texas. And my principal thought it would be a good idea. Uh, I went for my Bechina and uh, did not do well on my Bechina. Well, you were 12, so. <laughs> I was 12. I remember, you know, I'll share the story, and it's a little bit of an embarrassing story, but so what? I'm a big boy now. Um, I came to the Yeshiva of Philadelphia, and Rev. Shul Kamenetsky Rambel Yeshreya behind the desk, and I'm sitting down, and I'm 12 years old, and they say to me, what are you learning? So I said, I'm not really sure. I think I'm learning Ketzad Oregel, which is the second chapter in Masachet Bavaka. So they asked me a question, and I had no idea what the answer was. So I said, I think I was absent that day. Okay, they asked me a second question. I can't believe I'm telling this story. They asked me a second question, and I said, I think I was absent that day. Then they asked me a third question. I had no idea. So I said to them, and I said, I know you're not going to believe this, but I think I was absent that day also. At which point they realized that they have nobody to talk to here. So they dismissed me. I took some kind of an English exam and then uh, I went home. My father drove me to Philadelphia, drove me home. And then at night we get the phone call, your son is accepted. They accepted me, I think, as a Kiruv case. Uh, every single year, there was one modern Orthodox guy, and uh, I, I know who they are. And Have a little club or a WhatsApp group. <laughs> yeah. The year before me, there was somebody, the year after me, there was somebody in my, you know, it was mostly a Haredi clientele. But I think they figured, you know, maybe they could have a Hashpah, they have an influence on some modern Orthodox guy to, to see the light. So that's how I got accepted. And I took to it. I took to it and I learned how to learn. I have undying gratitude to the Yeshiva of Philadelphia for opening up for me the world of Torah learning. It was a, maybe eight, seven, five years ago when I went to visit my ninth grade Rebbe, Rabbi Uri Mandelbaum, who was very, very, very not well. And I went into his house and I took him by the hand and I said, I want to thank you for opening up the Olam HaTorah to me. And I was crying to have this opportunity to express my Hakar Satov, my gratitude to my ninth grade Rebbe. I was 12 when I was in his class. I turned Bar Mitzvah that year. Uh, and I have great uh, gratitude to the Yeshiva of Philadelphia. I was there for five years. And after five years, I was planning on going to YU, Yeshiva University. It's a long story, but I ended up um, in the Mir in Yerushalayim in the sixth year and into the seventh year. And then I came back to the United States. And at that point, after a year plus in the Mir, I didn't feel like I wanted to go to Yeshiva University anymore. So I went to Torah Vedas. My smicha is from a Sifta Torah Vedas. Uh, I never went, I was never, ever a student at Yeshiva University in any of its uh, schools. 
Um, I uh, went to college at night, uh, Brooklyn College. I have a BA from Brooklyn College. And my smicha is from uh, Mesifta Torvadas. Over the course of my time in Torvadas and, and in Brooklyn College and also living at home, I slowly began to come back to my parental way of thinking. Uh, my, my parents were uh, leaders of the modern Orthodox uh, community in America. And uh, I slowly came back to that. I encountered a uh, professor at Brooklyn College, Professor David Berger, who had a very powerful influence on me. I, I went to college, and in college, he's talking about the Ramban and the Rashba and the Ramban, Rabbi Kivega and Rabbi Yaakov Emden and Rabbi Yonis And it occurred to me that I could actually maybe even consider living in these two worlds, that I could learn and have a connection to serious Torah scholarship at the highest level while being in university. So I applied for graduate school in Jewish studies. I got smicha, but I was not interested in being a rabbi. I wanted to be a Jewish historian. I think that was a way that I was going to differentiate myself from my father. I was going to do the scholarship route. And I got accepted to Harvard, and I went off to Harvard to graduate school. And after a couple of years, I was feeling guilty that I'm sitting all day in the library and I'm not doing anything for Klai Yisrael. So I took a job in a very, very small community outside of Boston in Sharon, Massachusetts. I was the first rabbi of the young Israel of Sharon. Our family was the 13th family in this shul. It was a tiny, tiny shul. And uh, after four years, four and a half years, 13 families became 80 families. A small building became a bigger building. No mikvah became a mikvah. No day school became the beginning of a day school. And in 1981, I was invited to be the rabbi of the Jewish Center, this big, massive shul on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And I had a real uh, crossroads then because I had a shot at a tenure track position in Yale University in Jewish Studies. And I had a shot at going into the rabbinate. Now, these two could not possibly coexist simultaneously. And at that moment, I decided I'm going the rabbi route and uh, became the rabbi. And it took me another six or seven years till I was able to finish my doctoral dissertation. I spent 15 years at Harvard. My main teacher was Professor Isidore Tversky, Yitzchak Tversky. It was Rabbi Soloveitchik's son-in-law, of course. Rabbi Soloveitchik's son-in-law. And my other very influential teacher was Professor Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi, who was at Harvard before he moved over to Columbia. Columbia, sure, yeah. So th this, these were really great times for me. You know, you're inviting me to think back at Crossroads. I think, you know, there's a famous poem by Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. And uh, I think for each one of us, uh, I invite you and I invite your listeners to think back about, you know, what could have been and how the Rabboni Shalom uh, runs the world and figured out, hopefully, that this is the best way for, for me, for you, for all of us, and what we can do to maximize the decisions that we made for our own benefit, but even more so for the benefit of the Jewish people. Do you remember consulting with your father at this major crossroads? After all, you had kind of looked to individuate and go that scholarship route. And here you were now being invited to one of the most iconic synagogues in America, 
a kind of a uh, incubator for great talent, Rabbi Norman Lamb and so many other, you know, seminal figures. Yeah. Yep. Did you consult with your father at the time? Yes. Not only did I consult, but my father was in charge of rabbinic placement at Yeshiva University. At that <laughs> so besides being the rabbi in the Bronx, he had a day job where he was director of rabbinic placement. And, you know, he, he worked bent over backwards, not to be accused of nepotism. You know, obviously he couldn't deliver the job for me. I had to strut my stuff. Uh, but every step of the way, I was in very close contact with him. Uh, he helped me with my drusha for my tryout jobs, uh, which was uh, good enough to land me the position. So that was something very uh, risky. And were you coming right on the heels of Rabbi Lamb? No, there was one rabbi in between. That's good. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't really so good. His name was Rabbi Isaac Bernstein, Zachronel Levracha, who was an orator. He's of, also a great orator, yes. <laughs> unbelievable. He would walk into the bima, into the pulpit, and he would dramatically take off his glasses, close his eyes, lift his right hand up to the sky and his right index finger was pointing and he would move it back and forth and he would declaim 11 lines of the Meshachachma in dramatic fashion. He was a genius. And when I came to the Jewish Center, I was 30 in 1981 and I had to follow him and it was very difficult for me. I followed Dr. Lamb and I followed uh, Rabbi Isaac Bernstein, the rabbi emeritus then was Rabbi Dr. Leo Young. Uh, he had been the rabbi for 65 years, 60 years. And uh, he was behind me uh, on the bima. He was 90. I was 30. He was behind me on the bima. And Dr. Lamb was sitting in the pews in front. So it was quite uh, a challenge for me to do this. Uh, it was hard at the beginning. And then, thank God, I was able to... Uh, be miscaber to do what I needed to do. And I was there for almost 19 years. Incredible. So where did you go afterwards? Eventually you did leave that. We'll fast forward just in the interest of time. At some point, I know that you went to found a center for studies in Boston, right? Focusing on yeah. the teachings or writings of Rabbi Soloveitchik. In the year 2000, I moved to Boston to head the Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik Institute, which was focused on the teachings of Rabbi Soloveitchik, the works of Rabbi Soloveitchik. It was founded by leaders of the Maimonides School in Boston that was founded by Rabbi Soloveitchik and his wife in 1937. Um, I was there for five years. And in 2005, uh, Richard Joel, who was then the president of Yeshiva University, invited me to come to YU, where I have been ever since. What's fascinating is that you yourself were not a student of Rabbi Soloveitchik. You were never enrolled in Yeshiva University, notwithstanding your father's claim as the first ordained rabbi by him. But uh, how did you tackle that challenge, having not been one of his disciples? And in fact, did you encounter resistance that you weren't part of the family, so to speak? Well, it started earlier because in 1988, a couple of years after I became the rabbi of the Jewish Center, uh, Dr. Lamb, who was then the president of Yeshiva University, founded what he called the Torah Umada Project. He felt that there wasn't enough proactive attention being paid within the world of YU on the motto of YU. You know, the logo of YU is Torah Umada, 
which means there's some kind of a combination between Torah, which is first, and let's call it secular studies or other kinds of studies, which was second. Uh, and he invited me to head the Torah Mada project. I did a lot of all kinds of interesting uh, acts as part of that, including founding the Torah Mada journal, uh, which I edited for many years. That's when Dr. Lamb got a lot of pushback. Right? This Torah guy you're inviting to head the Torah Mada, you never went to YU. But I came by it honestly. Dr. Lamb knew me and knew that by then, I really did believe in and was committed to the ideology of Torah Mada. It's not something that I just went through perfunctorily because I happened to have been a student there, but I earned my Torah Mada credentials. When I got to uh, Boston, that was no longer, no longer an issue. I will tell you that Rabbi Soloveitchik was my Masada Kedushin. Uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, officiated at my wedding to my wife because of my father. Not because I had a relationship with him, but because of my father. But when I moved to Boston in 1973 to study with his son-in-law, I became close with Rabbi Soloveitchik because he commuted back and forth. And I would go to his uh, Saturday night Matsoi Shabbos Chumash class. I'd go to a Sunday morning Gemara shir. I would ask him all my shyless, uh, all my questions uh, before I became a rabbi. And then certainly after I became a rabbi, I would ask him a question, and he would say to me, no, Rabbi Shechta, what do you think? What do you think? So I would say to him, Rebbe, I know what I think. It doesn't matter what I think. I want to know what the Rebbe thinks. I never said you to him. You know, what does the Rebbe think? He said, no, 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 no. What do you think? So I then had to tell him what I thought. Vai, 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 vai. So I, I tried to explain to him the basis for my reasoning. Sometimes he would say, all right, all right, all right. And most of the time, he would say, no, 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 But I learned something incredibly powerful, that he was telling me that I have respect for your opinion. I may disagree with it. I would say, and ask him a shyly, he'd say, what do you think? That's like astounding. He didn't just say, okay, here's what you do, here's what I've... No, no, what do you think? And that made me feel like a million bucks. I was, I was 26, 27 years old. I was, a, I was a nothing, a nobody. But he empowered me to think. And sometimes he agreed. Most of the time, he didn't agree. That's great. That's fine. So I went to him. I had no ownership of this. I, I wanted to know Das uh, Torah. I wanted to know what the Allah was. Um, so I became very close with him in those years. And the family uh, and the people who put this together knew that. So uh, I was invited to become the dean. I was there for five years, meaningful years. But, uh, at the end of that time, I wanted to get back to New York. I had this incredible opportunity. I have tremendous gratitude to uh, President Joel for bringing me into the Yeshiva University uh, community. And I do all kinds of really fascinating, interesting things at YU. And I feel very blessed. Thank God. Baruch Hashem. So at that point, you had left. The, you were leaving the rabbinate, really. I mean, you had already left the rabbinate. I was still a rabbi in Boston. Uh, when I moved to Boston, I was a rabbi of the Maimonides Minyan. Besides being the dean of the Rabbi Soloveitchik Institute, it was quite imposing for me because the previous rabbi had been Rabbi Soloveitchik. Uh, rabbi Soloveitchik was a rabbi of this Minyan. 
Uh, he got sick in 1984 and uh, never came back to shul. 1994, he passed away. The last 10 years were very difficult for him. And then after 1994, they couldn't bring themselves to get another rabbi. I mean, how can anybody be a rabbi now? It took them six years, after which time I became the rabbi. So I was a kaviachal, as it were, uh, still a pulpit rabbi, but that wasn't my major focus. My major focus was uh, my work for the uh, Salvage, Rabbi Salvation Institute. But after that, you were ready to go full-time into teaching. After that, pulpit rabbinate entirely after 30-something years as a pulpit rabbi, and I went into uh, teaching. Part of what I do at YU is I work with pulpit rabbis. I have a program, a Yachet Kala program, where I work with pulpit rabbis. I just finished my eighth cohort, about 280 rabbis who have gone through my program from the United States, from North America, from Europe, even uh, Iran. I have a rabbi who's a rabbi in Tehran and uh, many different countries. And 40 of my Talmidim in this program have made Aliyah, have come to Israel. This coming year is the 20th anniversary of the Yarche Kala, and we're planning appropriate uh, programs to mark that, what I think is an extraordinarily meaningful milestone. What's been your role at Yeshiva University? Have you been primarily teaching Jewish history? Have you been doing a lot with the rabbinical ordination program, the Smicha program? What were you brought there to do? I was brought there for two jobs. One is as a regular academic. So I teach two courses a semester, uh, Yeshiva College, sometimes Stern College, more often. I taught in the Azraeli Graduate School. This past semester, I taught in the Revel Graduate School. So it's And also the Fish Center. There's a new center at YU for Holocaust and Genocide Studies. So this is you know, hardcore academic teaching, two courses a semester. And I also publish articles and writing books, I'm doing you know, the regular academic kinds of focus. And in addition to that, I was brought to be the senior scholar of what was known as the Center for the Jewish Future. Rabbi Brander. With Rabbi Brander. Rabbi Brander was the dean, and I was the senior scholar. And here the goal was to have an impact, not just within the yeshiva, not just in the academic world, but in the broader Jewish world, and I've uh, been very much involved. It is under that aegis that I ran this program for rabbis uh, for all of these years, and uh, Baruch Hashem, thank God, continued to do so. Now, at this moment, I'm teaching a chabura, a smicha chabura, in the rabbinical school, and uh, this coming semester, I'm going to teach that, and I'm going to teach a course at Stern College. That's what the full semester looks like for me. Now, most recently, I, I've been reading, and perhaps it was in Jewish Action Magazine and elsewhere, about uh, your latest venture, which I guess kind of brings things full circle in a sense, whereby you know your father was this towering figure who made such an impact as an American soldier, as a GI, and helping so many in their greatest time of, of need. And you are doing work now to, I guess, repatriate soldiers, Jewish GIs who themselves were killed in battle and offering them the proper dignity, the Jewish burial rights of sorts. 
tell me a little bit about how that emerged and, and what exactly it is for that matter. This is something that I um, serendipitously fell into, nothing to do with my previous life in a practical sense. One of the things that I did uh, for many years is to lead Jewish history tours to Europe for American Jews. And uh, we would travel summer after summer, spring after spring to different parts of Europe. And I would learn with them the Jewish history of that place. Uh, we would learn the uh, tshuva of the rush in Toledo. We would study the Ramban of Barcelona. We would study the Baleatosos in France. We would look at texts, important texts, in this place where they were first generated. And I would give a background about the Jewish history. In the year 2014, we went to France. We were based in Paris. And uh, there's a lot of Jewish history in Paris and surrounding areas. We decided because we were Americans, and it was now in May of uh, 2014, this is now the 70th anniversary of D-Day. D-Day was in 1944, it's now 2014. So we decided we would take a break from Jewish history, and we would travel to the Normandy area to go visit D-Day and to go to the Normandy Military Cemetery. Uh, not that much Jewish history, a little bit, but not, not enough to warrant a, a trip to Normandy. It's three plus hours out of uh, Paris. So we, we get there and we tour around. It's very powerful. And we come to the Normandy Military Cemetery. I had been there before, but now I'm there with a group of Jews. And if you go in there, and I invite you and your listeners to go online and see what it looks like. It's incredibly organized. Down to the millicentimeter is the exact amount of space between each one of these graves. And they're aligned one exactly behind the other, one exactly next to one another. So if you look in any direction, in any as far as the eye could see, it looks exactly the same because this is behind this. They're all crosses, crosses, crosses. You see one cross except every once in a while, the symmetry is broken by a Jewish star. So the way a Jewish soldier is identified is the entire marker, instead of being a cross, is a Jewish star. And I was walking around, I was very moved, very solemn and serious, and the holy place. And, and you think about these young boys who were killed, and uh, I had this feeling that there should be more Jewish stars. There should be more Jewish stars. I knew the statistics, 2.5%, 3%. I don't know. There should be more Jewish stars. And I filed it away in my mind, and we went on with the rest of the trip. When I came home, uh, shortly thereafter, I was in uh, West Hempstead for a simcha, and I met my friend Shalom Lamb who was the chazan of the Jewish center in the early years when I was the rabbi. He's a businessman, but he has an interest in things military. And I happened to be sitting next to him at the table, and I said, you know, Shalom, it wasn't long ago I was in Normandy, and I don't know, I think there should be more Jewish stars. He really took to this, and he went home and uh, began a whole research effort. And in fact, based on the percentages, determined that there should be Another hundred. There were, I think, 158 Jewish stars out of 9,600 markers. There should have been more. And uh, we decided 
to start poking around. And uh, we started with the Jewish sounding names were buried under crosses. In Normandy, it's very easy because on the website, every single marker is identified in a separate page with the name of the soldier, a stickle, a little bit of a story, and a picture of the marker. So you could tell exactly. You just scroll through and you see the names. So it was a, it was a whole story. The first name we came across was Mendel Goldberg. Mendel Goldberg is buried under a cross. We figured, you got to be kidding. Mendel Goldberg? So Shalom Hazabachutin, Steve Lamar, who is a lobbyist in Washington, but an amateur genealogist, we start poking around. Mendel Goldberg is not Jewish. Mendel Goldberg's father married a non-Jewish woman, had a son, named his son Mendel for his father. So Mendel Goldberg is not Jewish. His mother is not Jewish, buried under a cross. So that was a non-starter. Then we come to a second name. Uh, I believe it like Benzion Bergman. Ben-Zion Bergman or Bernstein. We do research, 100% Jewish. It's a whole Sipur. We have now already a genealogist uh, who is on our staff who does all of this research. So we go to the organization within the army that's responsible for all of these cemeteries. It's called the American Battle Monuments Commission. They're responsible for 27 American military cemeteries overseas, containing the remains of soldiers who were killed during the Second World War. They tell us, yes, we're convinced that he's Jewish, but we can't do anything about it unless we get a request from a family member. You know, you can't just parachute in here and start moving markers. And I, we understood that 100%. And now the work really begins to go find a family member. The soldier was killed when he was 19. His parents, this is 70 plus years ago. His parents are gone already 15, 20, 30 years ago. He has three sisters. Each one gets married to someone with a different family name. You know, go find, go find the family. So we were successful. And then we had to reach out to the family. And why would they answer us? You know, if you got an email, hi, uh, I found something about your great uncle. Put $20 in an envelope and send it. We say in the third sense, we don't want any money, but we want to bring something to your attention. So it's spam. They, They dump it. We finally, finally, finally got to the family. And the family said, I'm really sorry. We cannot give you permission. We have a family tradition that before Ben Zion went to fight, he had a fight with his father. And he told his father, the heck with you, the heck with Judaism. If I die, I'm going under a cross. That's the Messorah they have in their family. And so therefore he said, I can't in good conscience give you permission. We, we think that that needs to be revisited. And we're going to come back to that. So here now we're 0 for 2. We finally found uh, Benjamin Garadetsky, and here was our first success. Benjamin Garadetsky, Jewish, unbelievable, incredible evidence. We found, after a long story, fascinating, a nephew who's a doctor in St. Louis by the name of Bruce Lipman. And till we got Bruce Lipman to respond to us is a whole story, and he did, and he agreed. 
And four years later, in June of 2018, I returned to Normandy with members of the Garadetsky family. Bruce has a brother, Andrew, in Long Island, and friends of theirs. And I was worried we wouldn't have a minion. So I have a contact in Paris. And a whole bunch of Jews took the train from Paris to help us make a minion. I created a booklet that has a whole ceremony. There, there's nothing in the Hamadrich in the rabbi book. <laughs> what you do when you change a Latin cross to a Jewish star, they, they didn't have that. So I made the whole thing up with Tehillim, with prayers, with poetry, a whole tekes. It took 40 minutes. We invited the superintendent of the Normandy Cemetery to speak. I'm inviting you and your listeners, www.operationbenjamin.org. You'll find a four and a half minute YouTube of that first, very first uh, ceremony that we did. You, you look for Benjamin Garadetsky. It's right up there. You'll scroll down and you hit the YouTube four and a half minutes. It's really powerful. Since then, we've done, I think, 17. Uh, in February of 2020, three and a half minutes before the world shut down, I went with Shalom and some of our leadership, and we did five in one day in Manila in the Philippines. The American Military Cemetery in the Philippines is the largest of all of them. There are over 30,000 graves. I told you Normandy is 9,600. We did five right after Pesach. Uh, we went to Belgium, France, and Luxembourg, and we did seven. Uh, we're going uh, in September to southern France to do one. Then at the end of October, beginning of November, we're going to Normandy, Brittany, and Cambridge, England to do a bunch. And Amir Tzashem in February, back to Manila to do. So this is an ongoing process. I think part of what motivates me, as you pointed out, was my father was a soldier. My father spoke with great respect about American soldiers. It meant a lot to him. He was head of the chaplaincy commission of the Jewish Welfare Board for decades. His role as a soldier in the American army was central to his uh, identity. So I think I'm channeling piece of this is not just a chesed shalemes, it's not just to do the right thing that these brave young men who gave their lives should lie for all eternity under a marker that represents their ancestral faith. But it's also a piece of, of my father's experience. So go to www.operationbenjamin.org and you'll find out, and your listeners will find out a lot about this organization. And uh, reach out to us. We need help. We need help. If you want to make a donation, I'm not going to turn it down. We do not take money from families because we don't want them to think that this is a quid pro quo, but we're happy to take money from anybody else who thinks that this Chesed Shalemis is worthy of support. Does the Monument Authority cover the cost of changing over the marker? Our relationship, I'm glad you raised that in American Battle Monuments Commission and we have an incredibly respectful relationship. We have proven to them that our research is impeccable. Originally, Garadetsky took 18 months for them to okay it. We're now down to about one month uh, for them to okay our submissions. Uh, we have a 
very warm, mutually respectful. I would even say close relationship with them. They cover the cost of the new monument. They pay for the uh, new, that, it's a big deal. They have to go to a quarry and take it out and shape it. And every monument has the name of the soldier, the day the soldier was killed, the rank of the soldier and the state that the soldier uh, lived in. They pick up the Latin cross marker, put it on the side, and then go and bring the Jewish star. You'll see it on the website. It's very, very, very powerful. Incredible. Well, if I can uh, give my own uh, armchair psychological analysis, you know, what's fascinating is that at 12 years old, you were sent away by this psychologist to go you know, individuate and find your own identity. But ultimately, what's so fascinating is you ended up, of course, as a scholar, but also as a, a rabbi for so many years. And now as someone who's deeply ensconced in the military culture and, and doing so much within the general orbit of the American military. And uh, in many ways, it seems like you came back to channeling your father and, and your parents' example in a very powerful way. I, that's very true. You know, and I think that's, I think, a lesson for all of us, that at some point in life, we need to individuate. At some point in life, we need to appreciate who we are and what we can become. But when we leave our parents, we leave our parents the way we walk away from the Kotel. How do we walk away from the Kotel, Ari? You walk away from the Kotel, you said you've been here, uh, I'm now in Yerushalayim. You walk away backwards. You don't just turn your back and march out. So we have to leave our parents and we have to separate from our parents. When we separate from our parents, walking away backwards. What does that mean? That we're constantly looking at them and they're constantly looking at us as we move away. We have to move away, but we're really connected. And I think at some point in life, when all of that separation is done, hopefully with a modicum of success, we can come back. And something that I've been doing for my entire life is to be continue to be connected with them. Rabbi Dr. J.J. Schachter, thank you so much for joining us. The pleasure. I wish you well. A lot of Hatzlacha to you, Ari, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to speak with you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.